Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vago Maradian here at the Farnborough International Air Show outside London, one of the world's most important air shows with defense leaders from around the world, military officers, industry executives and aircraft from all around the planet. On this, the Royal Air Force's 100th anniversary, the Royal Air Force, the world's first independent air force. Our coverage here is sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Farnborough International. And it's my absolute honor to interview Tom Enders, uh, the CEO of uh, Airbus, uh, an old friend, somebody who I've had an opportunity to cover for a very long time, and somebody who is retiring at the end of the year. Tom, great to see you, and congratulations on your impending retirement. Thanks for announcing my retirement at the end of the year. Actually, it's planned only for April next year, but... Uh, oh, my God. Okay, I apologize I will, for that. I will think about it, Vago. <laughs> I'll think about it. Um, I'm not trying to push you out the door any, any sooner than you have to go. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, I mean, uh, there's all sorts of jobs that uh, you can do, including putting your feet up for, for a little while. Um, you have been uh, at the helm of the company at a very, very interesting time. Uh, and, uh, you know, you get a lot of credit for helping the transformation of Airbus into a unitary, single, non-government, state-owned company. Uh, but I want to start with something uh, important, which is the Brexit question. You've uh, been vocal on issues that involve Airbus. Uh, we just had uh, uh, Guito Beb, the procurement minister, resign in part because of a continuing debate within the British government on soft Brexit or hard Brexit. We don't know what Monsieur Barnier, the negotiator for the uh, European Union, is going to say about any of these proposals. From your standpoint, it's going to happen from an Airbus perspective, what's the right, and a European industrial perspective, what's the right way for it to happen? What's the wrong way for it to happen? Well, we, we did think 10 days ago when um, uh, the Chequers Agreement uh, came out uh, that this was heading in the, in the right direction. Um, I'm not so sure anymore. I mean, this um, discussion inside the government is really troubling. Uh, not so much what, that they lost uh, the great uh, foreign minister, Boris Johnson, uh, but uh, the severe challenge that uh, Theresa May obviously faces within her, within her own party. Well, I mean, we as, as industry can, can uh, draw only one conclusion. We have to prepare uh, for the worst and, and hope for the best. But we have to prepare for the worst. We have to draw up contingency plans, which is what we actually done uh, in order to make sure that in a situation that might not be a soft Brexit, as people call it, but a hard and disorderly Brexit, we can safeguard our, our industrial interests as much as possible. And that is very much focused on the uh, supply chain. Um, as you look at it, on top of all of that, uh, there's now a transatlantic trade war. Um, there, it started with steel and aluminum. Uh, it's expanded since. Um, there are a lot of uh, Buy American calls on the U.S. side and America First calls. Uh, in this environment, talk to us about that dynamic, given that material costs are rising for everybody. Well, I would still hope that we are only on the verge of a trade war, that we are not yet uh, really into a trade war. And uh, I would very much appreciate if American colleagues would speak out uh, perhaps a little bit more clearly about that, because as everybody in the industry knows, there will be, will be no winners. And we've seen already by some reactions in the U.S. industry talk about Harley-Davidson, uh, that the results are probably not what uh, the intentions were when President Trump uh, started that. Uh, this is not good news to industry at large. It's certainly not good news uh, to aviation, which is very, very global, has been since, since, uh, since decades. And uh, I, I still hope 
that reasonable people will prevail and uh, convince this U.S. administration to uh, not further escalate uh, that situation. But how can, you know, you mentioned supply chains being the most important. Everybody is operating on a hyper-efficient level. Everything is just in time. I mean, the Toulouse factory and all your factories and factories everywhere in the world are models for efficiency where landing gear arrive at a certain time. Otherwise, uh, the guys at Safran, you know, Philippe Petit-Colin pays a penalty if the landing gear doesn't arrive on time. Um, fortunately, he has them arriving on time. What are the implications here in the event that this gets worse? Well, as I said, we need to prepare for ourselves, but there's no perfect preparation, there's no perfect answer. We'll probably have to look at the um, installment of, of buffers, that means um, more spend on, on inventories. And uh, this could eventually become pretty costly for industry, for the, for the main uh, manufacturers, but also for the supply chain. And uh, again, um, I would hope that not only a couple of people and, um, and companies speak up clearly, as we've done in case of uh, Brexit. Um, there's, a, there's a larger threat here that's called protectionism. That didn't start just with the uh, American president, Trump. It started already 2008, um, after the Lehman crisis, at the end of the Doha round, etc. But it comes um, slowly, slowly. We were able to adapt. If the straight war thing, as you call it, really uh, explodes around us, that will be a far more serious situation and will hit aviation, it will hit air traffic eventually. We don't see that so far. That's a good, that's a good thing. So there's a lot of optimism still, I think, in the world that uh, this situation, uh, the trade war at large, can be, can be avoided. But we know aviation is, is very volatile, air traffic reacts on crises, oil Oil, oil price hikes and uh, military conflicts and trade wars, yes. Um, let me ask you a broader question about uh, President Trump and his policies. Obviously, the president has been very vocal about European governments needing to spend more. Uh, all European governments and NATO uh, member nations are spending more. Uh, but one of the other uh, demands, as, as uh, the president and his supporters put it, is spend more, spend it on U.S. arms, give the U.S. trade concessions, you get security in return. That message has gone down badly with our allies who look at this as a treaty obligation and not a transactional relationship. And European leaders have told me over and over again, if we're going to spend more, we're going to spend it more in the United States. Spend it more, maybe not on U U.S. weapons, but actually more on European solutions. Uh, you had Europe's and one of the world's leading uh, aerospace and defense industrial uh, companies. Uh, from that standpoint, do you think that as European governments spend more, they're going to direct it more toward Europe, and this gives Europe an opportunity to coalesce the way uh, leaders have called for a very long time, which is Europe to preserve its sovereign capabilities? Well, you, you might be surprised, but uh, this gives me the occasion to defend President Trump. Uh, I think he's, he's right on one thing. Uh, Europe uh, is not spending enough on defense. That's blatantly clear. If we take the EU, average spending is 1.5% of GDP. Germany even is at only at, at uh, 1.2%. Uh, and the U.S. is around 3.5 or something like that. So um, obviously, and that is not a, a new situation, uh, that, needs to be, that needs to be corrected. President Trump is just the first president who blatantly and, and, and openly talks about that. And I think that's helpful. I think a lot of uh, people inside NATO, inside uh, Europe, are now rethinking their uh, defense spending, and that is, is a good thing. It should have happened a long time ago. The way he does it in this uh, very confrontational uh, uh, with this very confrontational method uh, does not necessarily 
help. And I mean, if people in general were in, in, um, in favor of more defense spending, you read the European polls, you could see that in recent years. But people said, yes, there's so much uncertainty and threats and risk outside, we need to do more on that side. Now that the president is uh, threatening uh, the Europeans uh, with uh, the defense spending, so to say, it can be counterproductive. Well, from an industry point of view, it's a good thing that uh, defense uh, spending decrease, a situation that we had for many years, has now come to a, a stop and that the defense budgets in, in coming years will it at least uh, rise, not spectacularly, but, but uh, they will rise. And um, I think, yes, I mean, uh, we have a lot of uh, capable European defense companies. We have a lot of uh, equipment, a lot of solutions that we, c we can offer. Um, I, would, I would still hope, as you know, as somebody who has been transatlanticist for his, his old professional life, that we will also find in the future solutions where we pool requirements and solutions between both sides of Atlantic, where we're not getting it either European or uh, American, uh, for instance, like in the commercial area where we have American engines, of course, also on our planes and, and European engines and something like that. I don't think we would be uh, well advised on both sides of Atlantic if we had a kind of a hard, hard split, it's them, it's them against us. Um, but uh, again, I think, yes, there will be additional defense spending, there will be additional projects, think about the Franco-German uh, fighter project. Uh, the Brits revealed another project uh, yesterday uh, with uh, with European partners. I hope that eventually this will coalesce into into one uh, project that would be good for the industry and that would be good for taxpayers. Do you know at this point what that would look like? Uh, what kind of airplane you think Europe needs, especially or, or the world maybe needs, especially at a time when many of these countries are putting the F-35 into service now? I have no clue, and uh, we are at very early stages here. I mean, governments are talking about a replacement for tornadoes and other aircraft, 2035 earliest, 2000, 2040. That gives us time to bring our various industrial concepts and uh, approaches uh, together. That gives us time to convince also governments that we should have uh, not two or three, but one European uh, approach. The only thing we do know, and, and, and I see very clearly, is that we're not just talking about one aircraft, one flying platform, but a system, the future combat air system, which will certainly have uh, manned and unmanned platforms and, uh, and, and, and other features. So it's not just an aircraft program in the future. That, I think, is um, the right way to go. Um, as you look 10 years out in the future, um, what do you see? What does the industrial landscape look like, particularly from a European standpoint? Is there going to be more consolidation, do you think? Ooh, that's a, that's a difficult one. I mean, uh, uh, with all the acceleration that's happening around us, it's even difficult to foresee what uh, the landscape will look, look like in, in five years. I'm, I'm saying that also because there is uh, such a, you know, uh, acceleration in technologies that come in. Digitalization will play a big role. We see it in commercial aircraft now that uh, digital solutions will breed new services business, will breed new ways on um, uh, how we develop aircraft, how we manufacture aircraft in a much more coherent um, um, digital, digital way. Uh, we have to reckon that um, there's uh, new competition coming up uh, from, from Asia, particularly uh, from, from China. Uh, these people don't have all the old baggage that we carry around with us, old production systems and, and so on and so on. 
Um, we see it in military already. Look at the UAVs that the Chinese manufacturers are offering all over the world. Uh, so I would think that the future in general in, in aerospace, like it or not, will be much more Asian. Um, you have had an incredible tenure. Uh, you um, drove the company again into much more of a single integrated <coughs> company. Uh, folks saw it not as extensions of state companies, but actually a profit-driven, uh, normal company, as a lot of folks in the city would say, uh, and even folks on Wall Street started to regard it. You championed um, the transatlantic link for Airbus to start playing big time in the U.S. market in two tanker competitions, uh, made some very, very important acquisitions, uh, NVIDIA and a number of other companies uh, in the U.S. Settled that were down in mobile. That's, and I was going to say, you championed the <laughs> Alabama facility, yes. which at the time people said you were crazy yeah. to do, and you did it, and, it, and it's yeah. going to be uh, strategically yeah. successful yeah. for you. As you look back on your career, what did you think you got right? What did you think you got wrong? Uh, there's, there, I think I can think of, uh, you know, BAE deal maybe that uh, didn't work out. But tell us also what your proudest achievement was. Well, I mean, I'm not sure we have enough time here to, to tell you particularly what, what, what all went wrong in all these years. Yeah, sure enough, we achieved some, some things. We failed on, we failed on others. Uh, you're right, the integration of a company is probably a big achievement, but that was not made by one or two men. It was a, it was a real team effort. <coughs> we were very lucky that particularly the last five, uh, ten years, we had strong support from, from our board as well, the independent board. Um, well, I mean, if we look back, integration, internationalization of a company, I think, um, has been uh, very important. Sometimes I ask myself, I go, did it, did it really need that much time to, uh, until that was achieved? Why did we take more than 10 or 15 years to do this integration job? But every, every idea uh, has its time, and I think it was, um, it, it, it was as fast as we could do it. I'm proud of, um, the, as I said, the internationalization, putting final assemblies, uh, assembly line in China. That was the first final assembly we did, large commercial aircraft outside Europe. Uh, equally proud of what we did in, in Mobile because that was really a strategic decision in the sense of it cannot be wrong to be strongly industrially present in, in, in the most important markets um, of the world. Uh, it makes us perhaps today a little bit less vulnerable than we would be without that strong uh, American footprint. That's right, because you're an American manufacturer now. <laughs> we are an American manufacturer, absolutely, and we're just adding to that. I mean, the former C-Series, now the Airbus uh, 220, will also be manufactured back-to-back -back in the mobile uh, facility, so the folks down there are, are pretty proud and excited about it, as they should be. Uh, the decision on the deal, I think, was important. The alternative would have been to kick off a new single-eyed program that would have cost the industry north of $12 billion, for sure. Uh, we were able to develop that aircraft uh, with a fraction of uh, that money. That was certainly uh, also a very important decision. And, you know, uh, go on. Biggest failure, perhaps, yes, was the link up with BAE. In my career, I think I tried to do this uh, three times. <laughs> uh, third time, we were not lucky. We've, we failed again. And uh, uh, I don't know whether my successors will ever try that again. But it would have made a lot of sense because the company would have um, uh, established even stronger links across the channel. And imagine in this situation there we have this threat of Brexit. It would not be a bad thing to have a industry, a company, hopefully a couple of others, who would keep us together. And I, I really think that um, we should uh, try very hard in Europe. I have no doubt that the, the Brexit will happen uh, to keep the ties, the security and defense ties, 
very close uh, with uh, our British friends. That's in the interest of the EU, that's in the interest uh, of the UK, and it's in the interest of uh, industry, and not just in aircraft, but also on the space side. Galileo comes to mind. It would be absolutely stupid to kick the Brits out of Galileo. Um, let me take you to uh, strategy. You're a student of strategy. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, and you and I have had this conversation over time about what's the right balance between profit and investment. Um, if you look at it, a lot of Wall Street in the city has enormous pressure that it puts on CEOs in order to deliver dividends or uh, buybacks or all of that stuff. Whereas you would always tell me that it's also an obligation, especially of uh, a CEO who has sort of an international trust, if you will, in terms of an Airbus, which is important for all of Europe, both from a technology, technology, technology standpoint and industrial standpoint. Um, talk to us about the right balance, getting that balance right between how much you're investing and not return so much to shareholders that you find yourself on the back foot when you need to put that kind of heavyweight investment that's required is in the case of a major aircraft manufacturer or defense contractor. Well, that's a that's a hard one. Uh, I think uh, you and I know there's no there's no exact formula for that. You cannot say look at that and uh, uh, do it like that. That percentages, etc. I think over years we we were able to kind of strike a, a good balance between return to to shareholders uh, and investing into. Um, uh, into new um, uh, technology, and if you're criticized by both, by shareholders as well as, as by s important other stakeholders like unions, that you're, the one says you're, you're in investing too much in, into innovation, the other says not enough, you seem to be doing some, something right. And if I look at what, what Airbus has been doing and is doing right now, investing into, into uh, electrification of uh, aviation at large, investing into autonomy, investing into artificial intelligence, even quantum computing, stuff like that, that will be vitally important for the, for the future of the, uh, for the industry, investing into data. I'm for one convinced that data in the next decade, already in the 2020s, will, will play a larger role in, in propelling the, the industry forward than traditional aerospace skills. Yes, we still need these traditional aerospace skills, but if I just look at the rate of uh, you know, employing young data researchers, scientists, data analysts, and uh, re in the related professions, it, it, it demonstrates how quickly uh, this industry is uh, transforming, and I think there's an enormous opportunity to, uh, to, to reach out for new horizons, so to say, in, in, the, in the industry, and, and also technology, and uh, I find this very exciting. This is a perfect time to join the industry, and if I was 40 years younger, I would join exactly that same industry again. Let me ask you two quick questions before Martin gives us the hook. Uh, first, it, it, you have a reputation uh, for leadership. Uh, when the A400M was under development, you jumped from the airplane to show that it was hard. Uh, Tom is a reserve, uh, our a German Army major and paratrooper. Um, but there also have been two uh, allegations of corruption, and there are two investigations that are ongoing. I know you've taken this very, very seriously. I know there's a lot you can't say about it, but from your perspective, what, you know, you guys self-reported on each of these instances. Um, tell us what has been learned and how you've put some structure in place to make sure that if something did go wrong, it doesn't go wrong again. Well, you never can be 100% sure with all the preparations uh, you've been uh, taking, and actually, I mean, it's not like we have, uh, 
um, discovered uh, compliance a couple of years ago when we did the self-reporting. I uh, think we, we started to put serious compliance measures and policies and training into place um, at least 10, 10 years ago. But we discovered at some point that this had been not sufficient and, and consequentially not putting things under the rug but uh, reporting that to the authorities and this is how it, how it all started. Now these things take time, it take years of, of investigations and I'm not making any predictions here. But the, the lesson learned is that um, um, you, have to, you have to not just um, hire somebody who drafts policies for you or training schedules, etc. You really have to make a, a very thorough effort throughout the entire company to, uh, to, to, to change the culture or to adapt the culture and make everybody conscious. Uh, and this is not just about agents or business partners in, in our case. This is really about uh, having the proper culture in, in the company that people understand how important it is, that how, how quickly you can ruin a great brand uh, with uh, compliance issues. We've seen it in other companies in the industry. We're going through this. I mean, uh, we are no exception. It will be, it, uh, it will be, it will be tough um, and uh, will require a lot of change in the company. But I'm absolutely sure, Vago, that at the end of it, we'll come out of this a stronger, a, a more competitive, a cleaner company, and a much better company than we were in the past. One last question. You um, are a committed transatlanticist. Yeah. Um, are a mutual friend and mentor, Manfred von Nordheim. Yeah. Uh, we used to have this conversation very, very often about how important this link is. Do you think now, at a time when there is so much concern about the transatlantic future, that everybody took it for granted and hasn't fought enough to make the case why it's important, even for the global international rules-based order. It, has it something that folks who should have been making a better case maybe need to, you know, get engaged and make the case why this is so important, whether it's for the average German, average American, uh, you know, or, or French or whoever, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, it's so important. Do folks have to do a better job making this case about how important this is? I think it is. I think we all realize that we are at a very dangerous uh, point right now. But uh, I think the true Atlanticists uh, also differentiate. Uh, they don't say America is abandoning us. Uh, they don't even say the U.S. administration is abandoning us. Uh, the focus is on the White House, and I think that's a very important uh, distinction here. But I do think that, that business has to become more vocal about the, the situation and not just look at short-term benefits. There may be short-term benefits of the, the current policies, but look at the longer-term uh, implications, and particularly in aerospace, because we are a business with long cycles. It's a business where you really need to develop long-term strategies. And I think we all in aviation and in the aerospace industry tremendously benefited from uh, international cooperation, from globalization. Look, it, we, we are the largest foreign uh, buyer of U.S. aerospace goods, roughly 17 billion each year. Um, and it goes, it goes both ways. So, uh, and we need to be careful that, uh, um, you know, the industry does not just um, stay mute because we think, oh, there's some short-term benefits and exports and here and there. Uh, look at the long-term horizon, and then I think everybody would agree, at least in aerospace industry, uh, we, need to, we need to speak up, and we need to speak up for international cooperation, globalization, and particularly for a uh, vital and for a vibrant transatlantic relationship. And any retirement plans already, even though I got your retirement wrong, if you're going <laughs> to... As I said, I think about it. Maybe I should retire a little earlier. <laughs> no, uh, look, there's plenty of stuff to do, but um, 
uh, one thing I can I can assure you of: I will not hang on in in the industry. I'm, I'm very happy. I was uh, incredibly lucky and privileged to come into this position and to shape the company together with a great team for for many years. There's so many exciting things to do in this world, and uh, I don't think I, I will be boring. And I re reassure you, I will not spend all my time jumping from aircraft. <laughs> Tom Enders, CEO of Airbus. Sir, thanks very much, Tom. It's been an absolute exactly. pleasure covering you for a couple of years. And hey, you know, we, we may need a correspondent in Germany, so you're more than welcome to join us. Thanks for <laughs> that. Okay.